Good morning. It's time for the preached Word of God. My name is Douglas Jacoby, and it's an honor for me to be able to deliver the message today, which is from Romans 1. I titled it provisionally the good news and the bad news. I don't want to be honest in any way, but sometimes to be honest with the tone of Scripture, there are certain passages you should not skip over, and you'll see what I mean as we get there. The good news and the bad news. We've already had this morning a little bit of an introduction uh, to Paul. When Paul was in Corinth, and you, you see Corinth right there, that's Greece. This is the Mediterranean, it's hard to see the map. This is this is the 50s AD. He's been a Christian maybe 25 years. Paul is single. He's a, a rabbi, he's a Pharisee, and he's on fire for God. He is planning to make a trip to Rome. Here. He's never been there before. Uh, he would write letters to follow up from churches he established or places where there were issues. But normally he wrote letters to his friends. This is a little bit different because he's writing somewhere he's never been. The church is established in Rome already. It wasn't started by Paul. And despite another very large denomination that says Peter started it, I'm not aware of any actual evidence that that happened either. Probably in Acts 2, back in Jerusalem, there were visitors from Rome. And they would have gone back and probably started something there. And to me, that makes very good sense. In the first couple of paragraphs that we've already looked at, Paul says he's an apostle. All in Rome who are loved by God. He thanks them. He appreciates their faith. He speaks about the possibility of being mutually encouraged. I relate to that a little bit because I always feel when I get to speak around the world, whether it's in Rome or Jerusalem or Africa, I'm encouraging other people, but it's really very much two-way. I'm very humbled. I'm very encouraged. How does he do this? Paul is a strategic thinker. He's trying to achieve something. And he knows that with his training, and with really God's training, because God's been training his people, the Jewish people, for more than a millennium, each city he goes to, he begins focusing on the Jews. Now, in Rome, there were 40 or 50,000 Jews. That's a lot of synagogues. And there were a lot of Jews there. And, in fact, that e even after an expulsion by a previous emperor. They're still Jews. They're returning there. Rome is the biggest city in the empire with about a million inhabitants. So there's work to do. And that, that's the biggest city in the ancient world, at least that empire. Maybe the Chinese had one bigger. I wouldn't be surprised. So he wants to have a harvest, which means he wants to preach and he wants to see um, results. But you'll notice... I want to harvest as I have had among the other Gentiles. So although there are some Jews in the church at Rome, overall they're non-Jewish. They didn't eat kosher, they didn't keep Sabbath, they're not circumcised, at least not the majority. Paul is the rabbi coming in and he's winning them, whether they're Jews or Gentiles, to the gospel and this man is eager to preach. What is his strategy? Well, his strategy is to reason. 
first in the synagogue. And you see this strategy in the book of Acts. And he reasons. He's invited to speak. Uh, there's, I don't know if I would call it camaraderie, but at least he's welcome to speak and there's respectful interaction. I know something about this because I've spoken in synagogues before. In fact, just a few days ago, I was doing a presentation with a rabbi, a couple of lessons. And he was making his point that I'm not really expecting a Messiah, although I respect the New Testament. You know, I think uh, you guys are on the wrong track. I wanted to hear him out. I wanted to hear why. But I also wanted to be able to teach our students why it is reasonable that Jesus fulfills the prophecies. And I'm, I, I was really bursting with, with stuff to share, bursting with content, because I want to be respectful to him. On the other hand, I don't want people to misinterpret my respect as a lack of conviction. And I, I kind of think, well, how would Paul have done that? Well, and I, and I know how Paul did it. I know how the apostles did it, because we see in the footnotes of our New Testaments which scriptures they were using in the Old Testament. There's, all they had is the Old Testament. They don't have the New Testament. Maybe someday we can have a class on that. Right now, though, it's supposed to be a sermon. Paul has an agenda in writing Romans. And I'm reading between the lines. But if Rome is the largest city, it's going to be the most influential church at some point. That was definitely borne out for good or for ill. I mean, that, that was borne out. What is the, the biggest problem in the first century church? What's the toughest issue? No, it's not, it's not gender relations. It's not, no, it's not race relations, though that's very close. It's the relationship between Jews and non-Jews. And particularly, there's a group who are called the circumcision party, and they say that to become a Jew, you need to, to become a Christian, you have to become a Jew first. So if you've never done it, you need to go to the doctor and uh, have a little procedure, and then you can be a Christian. Paul does not want that teaching to divide the church in Rome the way it's been very divisive in other places. For example, in, in Asia. He doesn't want that. So what I think he's doing, he's writing this incredible letter about Jews and Gentiles and their unity in Christ on the basis of the gospel, faith. He's writing that, I think, to inoculate, to prepare, to preempt, to, to make sure if that dispute ever comes to town, that we are ready for it and not, not caught off guard. Every letter has a reason. Every epistle has a purpose. And I think that's what he's getting at here. This is the text uh, I want to base the message on, and we won't go much beyond it. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Paul says he's not ashamed, and that's important, at least in today's message, because I believe that sometimes you and I as Christians can be ashamed. I mean, well, what makes us ashamed? If you're in a public place and your friend is talking obnoxiously loud, does that make you feel a little bit ashamed? If a child is out of control, that can make you feel ashamed. Uh, occasionally, I'm, I'm a vivid dreamer. And occasionally I have dreams, even now, 
that I'm in a public place and I forgot to get dressed. And in my dream, I'm wearing like only a shirt and nothing else or pajamas. I mean, the first dream of this genre I had, it was terrifying when I was a little boy. I was, at, I was in uh, kindergarten and I dreamt that I went out in public and forgot to wear my shoes. I was barefoot. Now, you may not understand that, but for me, that was a horrible, horrible feeling. But the sense of shame, we're going to come back to this in a moment. There are all kinds of things we might be ashamed about as Christians. And we know what Jesus said. We're ashamed of him. He'll be ashamed of us, Mark 8. Well, what would we be ashamed of? Some of you have had babies recently. That's such a shameful thing, isn't it? I'm sure you didn't tell anyone I had a baby. Of course you told them you had a baby. And they probably figured it out anyway, before you had the baby. You get married. So we have a new engaged couple today. That's really cool. Uh, for, not just for the, the couple, I don't want to embarrass by saying their names, uh, Colin and Jared, but, but actually for all of us, that's cool. The day, the day I got engaged, I, uh, I proposed uh, to my, my wife-to-be, not far from Buckingham Palace. We're in St. James's Park. And then from there, we went to church, and I was preaching. I was preaching on joy. And, that, and I told the church, guess what happened to me this morning? It was a Sunday morning. I was pretty fired up. It didn't really matter what I said. Everyone was excited. It was actually the, the, the first wedding in our church in London. When you have news like that, you want to share it. But isn't gospel, doesn't that mean good news? God's gospel, for most people, it's, it's just a rock genre or kind of an embarrassing word. But if you go back to old Anglo-Saxon, God's spell just means good news. Well, if it's good news, why would we be embarrassed? You shouldn't be embarrassed. But sometimes we are. See, I want to go out in public. Now, this is a preaching Bible. You see this? This is not a small Bible. I can't discreetly, you know, put this in here when I go out to the restaurant. <laughs> what, they, what do you got in there, a bomb? <laughs> What do you got in there? You need a slimline Bible that'll be discreet. Because to walk in public like that, you might embarrass somebody. Okay, now you're starting to understand what I'm getting at here. We believe in sin. This is actually the good news section of our, of our text. <laughs> but I can't skip the rest of Romans 1. The fact that we as a church... And now let me speak to the insiders, members of, of North River, or brothers and sisters. Maybe you're not here, but you're from somewhere else, and you're so welcome. But we believe in sin, and that's not very popular. We believe in salvation. That's a good word to bring up at, in your college class at university, at the workplace, salvation. You mean you believe in damnation and salvation? Oh, my, you're an intellectual pipsqueak. I mean, you're caught like the Enlightenment was in the 1700s. What's wrong with you? And they want to make you feel small. You are probably a homophobe. And I'm not a homophobe, or if I am, I'm also a heterophobe. But more on that later on. <laughs> but we would certainly never want to be thought intolerant. But it says... The gospel is the power of God 
We're not normally ashamed of power. If you're a powerful person, maybe you're, you're a Hulk. Okay, you're six foot six, 300 pounds of rippling muscle. Yeah, it must be very embarrassing to go in public. No, it's powerful. Actually, I have a friend, I have a friend who's a power lifter, and he lies down. This is not a, a jerk, you know, a clean kind of lift, but he's, he's, he's lying down, power lifting about 650 pounds, which is like three of me. You can actually watch him on YouTube. Is he embarrassed by that ability? Am I embarrassed when I'm with him in public? He's also a preacher. He's actually the leader of one of our churches, sister church where I preach sometimes. He's a, national, he's a powerlifting champion. That's so embarrassing. What I'm getting at is here, look at the combination, ashamed, but by something that's powerful? Something that's weak would make you feel shame. Like, boy, I wouldn't want anyone to see me in the locker room. I'm so scrawny. Or I don't want people to see me profile because I don't like my nose. That's actually something I struggled with as a th third grader. No, no kidding. One day someone said, ooh, Jacoby has a ski slope nose. And I ran home and I looked at, and it went, it went like that, sure enough. <laughs> and for the next 10 years, I was always trying to turn my head the right way. They probably <laughs> thought I had a tick or something, you know. They'd be talking to me and I'd be jerking my head this way and that way. We get ashamed sometimes of stupid things or things that we perceive are weak. Maybe some of you did too, I don't know. But in the New Testament world, that's not what being ashamed is all about. It's a culture of honor and shame. What's shameful is the cross. Why would the cross be shameful? Because it meant your reputation is shot. It means the credibility of the family has gone down the toilet. Who's crucified the worst criminals? Slaves and those who committed treason. To admit that the founder of your faith and the one that you worship was crucified is shame. We don't relate to this so much, do we not relate to it, that we prefer to focus on the gore. We don't talk about the shame of the cross very much, but they did in the New Testament. We talk about the gore. And imagine the ribbons of flesh fluttering in the wind. And then he was on the cross, and the blood is bubbling up and dripping down. And, you know, and we say, well, they knew about the gore back then, but we need a lesson in gore. Maybe we do. I don't know. But I know what they emphasize more in the Bible is not the gore. In fact, the gospel accounts are modest. They're very restrained. There's, there's virtually nothing about that. What there is a lot about is the shame of the cross. The fact that the cross doesn't make sense. It's a stumbling block. The Jews don't get it. That's not the Messiah we expected. The Greeks say this is totally foolish. A God who's powerless? Why would you worship such a God? We better get going. There's one other verse. Paul continues, For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Somehow this is connected with power. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written... The righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. That's the theme of Romans. Every book has a theme. That's the theme of Romans. It could be put a different way. He who is 
righteous by faith will live. So you could go either way. Righteous by faith will live, right? Righteous will live by faith. It, it's, what's the difference? Actually, not much. To be right with God, we have to live by faith. You don't get right with faith on your own. You have to do it by trusting in him. But this is the theme of Romans, and this is what cuts across what would otherwise separate us as Jews and Gentiles, being proud of our pedigree or being proud of our philosophy. It's that the righteous will live by faith. And to put it a different way, you could say, live, that's life, as in Deuteronomy chapter 30, choose life. And if you don't, it's death. Now, Paul will continue this later. Uh, in Romans 5, he'll talk about death. He'll talk about death in Romans 6 and Romans 7. He'll talk about life later on, too, especially in Romans 6 and Romans 8, 12 and 13. But he's going to talk more about death in this very chapter. And so once we get past Romans 1.17, we're getting into the death section. This is the bad news part. But sometimes the good news doesn't really mean anything unless you see the practicality of it. And that is that there is some bad news. We get so numbed out, especially living in a Christian nation. Did I say we lived in a Christian nation? Yes, tongue-in-cheek. I don't really mean that. And being in the South... The good news, like every other person you meet and his grandmother probably believes in the Bible in some, you know, shady, guilty way, maybe embarrassed way. Is it really Christian? I think we're numbed out and we, we don't know what the issue is. You ever have you ever get numb in your body? I had a sports accident once. Result of that is I'm numb in my ankle. A pretty good patch, I'm numb. You could stick a needle in it, nothing. I had another sports accident. The other ankle, similar. That was falling down the stairs. But it was (laughs) after playing a sport. So I call that a sports accident. (laughs) Now, the, the other ankle, I was playing soccer. And that made a loud pop. And that, that was a true sports. Well, they're kind of both accidents. Sports accident. Now, when, you, when you're numb, you, you don't feel anything. That's the danger. And that's why leprosy gets advances as it does. Because nerve endings feel no pain. And you get an infection or a cut. And the thing spreads. And you don't feel it. And soon, you lost your toe or half of your nose. And that's the way it works. In other words, pain is useful and feeling is important. And if we're numbed out, we don't appreciate the good news. Now, let's get back in here and look at this final section before we return to our theme in 11617. So, we have this, this great news, something not to be ashamed about. It's something that will unify us in Christ, Jews and Gentiles. But verse 18, it's pretty sudden. We have living by faith, and the very next verse, the wrath of God. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. You say, wrath of God from heaven? You mean like, like Jove is throwing down thunderbolts? Thor is throwing his hammer? Jupiter is shocking everyone? Kind of. 
but not really. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. And he explains that by the creation itself, there are certain things we should know, but we suppress the truth. Now, the wrath of God is not if you're disrespectful to your mother this morning, then tonight you're going to trip in public and be embarrassed. God could play that way, but that's not the way he, he normally does it. The wrath of God, apart from the judgment day, the wrath of God is normally just the consequence of our own sin. If you're studious and taking notes, write down Psalm 711. Psalm 711 is a very good explanation of that. Now let me prove it. As we continue in this, this passage, we see three times that God gives us over. We were ungrateful. We got into idolatry. So God gave us over. Verse 24, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Instead of worshiping the Creator, they worshiped the creation. Because of this, and we have the second passage, because it's three times God gave them over. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. You mean there are different kinds of lusts? Yes. Uh, even their women exchange unnatural, uh, natural relations for unnatural ones. This is lesbianism. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. That's gay stuff. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. He's not saying that God sent a plague or sent a thunderbolt. He's saying that sin can be its own punishment. It's kind of like Jeremiah 2.19. If you're a Christian, you're backsliding. The backsliding is your punishment. It's bad enough. We get all tangled up in our own psychology. Because of this, and I continue to read in verse 28, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. And then he mentions another 15 or 20 sins, envy, murder, gossip, disobeying parents, hating God, being ruthless, and so forth. And then the last verse, I think, is referring back to uh, Adam, who was told he would die in the day that he disobeyed. Now it got a tiny bit quiet. It was already a little bit quiet in this auditorium. But I read over certain passages in the middle. I think it was the second, therefore God gave them over. You got really quiet. Uh-oh, what will he say? And will he embarrass me? And if I have a friend with me, will that friend be scandalized? Well, maybe, maybe there will be some scandalization. That's quite possible. But give me a chance to explain what I think Paul means here. He talks about a number of sins, like arrogance and ingratitude. It's ways we become, but it separates us from other people. An arrogant person is, is hurting himself. An ungrateful person is hurting, hurting himself, and obviously hurting his relationship with God. We've got idolatry. You say, what's wrong with idolatry? The Hindus want to worship Krishna or Lakshmi, let them. The Buddhists want to do Buddha, and, and this group wants to do that, let them. Here's the problem. We become like the thing we worship. 
So if you worship the goddess of wealth and prosperity in India, you know, you're worshiping Lakshmi, guess what becomes so important to you? It governs the decisions you make with your life. Money, prosperity. If you worship a god who's violent or not loving, it's fine to say everyone has his own preference. But what does this do to you as the worshiper? Whatever is most important to us in our life is our God, even if you're an atheist. See, the problem is, even an atheist is religious, but even if she or he cannot help it, because for everyone, there's something that's most important in your life, and you tend to organize your life around that thing, whether it's positive or negative. Sometimes you're trying to avoid something, that's your center. Sometimes it's something you want more of, and you try to engineer your life around it. That's, that's religious behavior. Everyone's religious, and we become like the God that we worship. See, but Douglas, what's wrong with sexual sin? Hollywood tells me that's a good thing. Uh, Hollywood tells us a lot of things. I think if we're going to judge Hollywood fairly, there's some to commend. There's some who are trying to live virtuously but they're a very large number that should probably just have their driver's license taken away indefinitely. Because <laughs> they show they don't know to, how to handle dangerous machines and substances, and they think they're above the law. And you can't have it both ways. Like, yeah, they're really cool. Yeah, I'm a Christian too. You're going to have to choose. Because not all, but most of Hollywood is the second half of Romans 1. It glorifies Envy, murder, revenge, and so forth. Casual sex. Hmm. You're not going to say anything else about sex? I was hoping you would. Especially that middle, therefore, he gave them over. About homosexuality. You know, people say, well, that's that's just in the Old Testament. Well, yeah, it's in the Old Testament. It's also in the New Testament. People say, well, Paul, Paul was just a man of his time. You know, he just reflects the attitude of the day. Maybe. I mean, the Jews definitely weren't, were not into this. In fact, Romans 1 is not talking about the sins of the Jews. That comes up in chapter 2. Romans 1 talks about idolatry, sexuality, homosexuality. These are sins of the Gentiles. The Greek philosophers spoke in favor of homosexuality. It was quite normal. Oh, but I thought that just, uh, I thought that came in in the sexual revolution in the 1960s. Then you thought wrong. I I thought it was new in history. Then you didn't read ancient history because it's all over the place. All over the place. And so for Paul to say such a strong thing, especially in a center of culture like Rome, he's taking a chance. He's a man of his time in one way, but I'll guarantee you he's not a man of his time culturally if this is an excuse. I was talking to a a public figure, someone famous, much better known than I am or anyone else I know, and he was saying, homosexuality is fine. Why would I blame someone for being born with one arm? Why would I blame someone for being born gay? He's making a good point. If there's something you can't help, then to be blamed for it is cruel. In fact, I would even give it to him. 
I'm not sure that you really are born gay. That, that's not to say I think it, it's an, an easy thing to overcome. But what if you're born angry? You ever meet a, a baby who was angry from birth, clenching the fist? And mothers know there's feed me or I've got colic or I'm wet. Where are you? And anger. What if you're born gluttonous? Now, you may not like me comparing that to alternative lifestyles. I ask you to suspend judgment for just a second. Because I'm not trying to, to be pejorative. I'm trying to make a point. Maybe you are born with enormous appetite. But, so what are you saying? Well, I incline this way. I was kind of born that way, really hungry, really angry. So I have to be, you know, I have to be a massive eater. Or I have to punch someone out now and again. Because it's my nature. Well, I, if... Even if it is your nature, what about restraint? What about holiness? Why do you just have to do what you feel like doing? Take the path of least resistance. Maybe you could glorify God even though you are angry or you are attracted to the same gender by managing that. Maybe the temptation will never go away. See, you think I'm a homophobe? I say, well, maybe I'm a heterophobe. I'm not afraid of it. I talk to all kinds of people who have all kinds of sex. Am I a heterophobe? Am I afraid of, of people shacking up with someone of the opposite gender? Afraid? Phobe? No. Am I against it? Well, who cares? What I say, the question is, what does God's word say? But it's embarrassing. I would shrink into a puddle of something unmentionable. Well, maybe you just need to get tougher. Because in Romans 1, there are all kinds of sins. It's just that right now in our society, we get focused, we get hung up on one or two. Is it so much worse than another one? Than envy or being self-focused or being narcissistic or being greedy or... No. You can find yourself in here. We're all guilty. Every one of us is guilty. So what's Paul doing? I like the idea he's a man of his time. Yeah? Okay. Well, Douglas, I think maybe it's just culture. Yeah, he thought that, and for the Jews and the Christians, that was good, but not now. Uh, I, I, I don't know if I can accept that. You think it's just a matter of preference, culture? Um, yesterday, day before yesterday, we had, my wife and I had... Um, a family to our home. They're, they're from Africa, West Africa. It's been really cold. We've, we've been using our fireplace. Really cold. They came in wearing their winter gear. We got our sitting room really warm. I built a roaring fire. For like an hour and a half, we're sitting there. They don't even take off their coats. I said, aren't you hot? No. It was probably 80 degrees. <laughs> the heat's getting kicked out, and we serve tea. Because in most of the world, you don't serve coffee, you serve tea. So they're drinking hot tea before a hot fire, wearing their winter clothes. Okay, that I get. You get used to a certain temperature, fine. 
you have a preference for a certain flavor. We have, we lean this way and that way. But are we saying that our sexual choices are just a matter of preference? Is is that what you're saying? Really? God doesn't have anything to say about this? I mean, God put sex in the first chapter of the Bible. And by the second chapter of the Bible, you have nudity and intercourse. Are there kids in this room? It's in the second chapter of the Bible. It's not like it's hidden. God has a plan. It's something beautiful. But it's been changed, hasn't it? And so we have death and we have life. And these are just six of the sins. I count about 25 or 30. You make your pick. And this is what I'm asking you. Is it really just a matter of culture? Is holiness just like about what I want to do, what I prefer? I don't think so. This is about death and life. And if you trust God's word, there's some things you would very much like to do, you're going to have to say no to. But society approves. I'm sure they will. Hollywood likes it. Of course they do. They'll do whatever will give them money. It's economic more than anything else. Don't demonize them too much. At any rate, my friends, Romans 1 is a description of the Gentile world. There's some bad news. You know, I I led you down a dark tunnel. I don't want to leave you there, but I can't get you out of there. The Apostle Paul can get you out, and the good news can get you out. Then chapter 2, we talk about the Jewish world, not the outsiders, but the insiders. Sometimes the insiders are worse off than the outsiders because they're more responsible. Then in chapter 3, he says, well, it's just basically the whole world. <laughs> it's the, it's the non Jews and the Jews, and there is no one else. It's the whole world. Then in Romans 4, we start getting solutions. And now this is where the sermon becomes a class, so I'm just going to keep on going as we end here. We have something that can really help people. I believe that with all of my heart, and I'm not ashamed of that. I was in the ICU yesterday. In the ICU, you see people who are really hurting, really messed up. Medicine doesn't always retrieve them, but it makes all the difference. The gospel is compared, and God's grace and forgiveness are compared to medicine, and our sin is compared to sickness in both testaments. And if that's the case, and this is true, our world is dark and really needy, and we have something that can help other people. I think that's what Paul's saying. The good news follows the bad news. I would say, if you're scandalized by, by my 12 minutes talking about sin, you need to get into God's Word. You're, you may be numb by what society has done. You don't feel anymore. We need to feel. When we understand how self and self-will and the pursuit of happiness has totally eclipsed holiness and the pursuit of holiness, then the good news starts making sense. We need to seek righteousness. Jesus says, seek first his righteousness, God's righteousness. Don't play games with the truth. 118 says people, they, they suppress the truth. God, in them, they reap what they sow. This is an expression of God's disapproval. But they play games with the truth. They suppress the truth. Don't do that. At least admit the Bible says what it says. And then reason. Be someone who, with the Apostle Paul, would have engaged and listened. Appreciate the good news, insiders, North River members, and others. But appreciate the bad news, too.
and appreciate the good news, those who are outside. But the gospel, I say to you, is a meaningless concept if everything is good news, if everything is light and goodness and peace and love and joy and acceptance and tolerance, and everything is wonderful, then the gospel really isn't that good news. But if we're lost and we need salvation, it's excellent news. And finally, stop being ashamed. God bless you. Amen. To be continued.